Hello and welcome back to Nothing Worth Saying. Our podcast was prorogued over the summer and now we're back for a fresh start to the term. <laughs> so uh, today we'll be discussing what's happening in Parliament. We've got Tom, Ellis, Joe and myself, the other Tom. So first of all, we'll be discussing prorogation, then deselections and resignations, deal or no deal and upcoming potential elections. So what is prorogation? It's the formal ne- uh, term for the ending of the parliamentary session. The session has been the longest since the English Civil War in over 400 years. And uh, the plan is to have a Queen's speech uh, on the 14th of October, setting out a new parliamentary session and a new agenda for this new government. The prorogation of parliament has been challenged in the Supreme Court in England and is uh, being appealed this week. So uh, the Scottish Highest Court has ruled that prorogation was unlawful while the English and Welsh highest courts have both ruled that it was lawful. So it's up for the Supreme Court this week to decide which is correct. So, boys, what do we think about the prorogation of Parliament? Do we have any thoughts? Well, I'm thinking that we should at least uh, have had a Queen's speech for the start of this podcast, to be honest, if we've been prorogued. (laughs) Sadly, Ben couldn't be with us. Um, It seems that it's, like, become so much of an issue that it's like typical of the Brexit debate, isn't it? Everything becomes completely polarised straight away. There's You can't go, you know, five minutes without hearing about it being either it's a complete unlawful coup or it's just, it's making sure Brexit happens. And, you know, it's kind of in the middle of that, isn't it? it it's, it's Johnson trying to get his way. But there's good reason for it in the fact that like Parliament's been dithering for three years and absolutely nothing's gone on. So you can understand his reasoning for it. Yeah, I also think it's massively backfired on him because he's got all the negative press of a prorogation, but with none of the upsides. <laughs> the um, for instance, the anti-no deal, which we'll come to later, has gone through. In regard of the court case, I, I think it's, it's really touch and go at the minute. Mm. It would be hard for the court to go we can't intervene in this case because where does that leave rule of law? If the court can't intervene, Parliament's suspended. So what is under law? How is Boris Johnson under yeah, law? Yeah, it's I'm kind saying. of hard, isn't it? Like the role of the, like our, the role of our Supreme Court. I mean, our Supreme Court's quite new anyway, isn't it? Yeah, 2005. Yeah, I think. the role of the Supreme Court isn't a very like cut and dry, is yeah. it, compared to like America? Mm, absolutely. It's interesting how they've used the like the logical conclusion argument as um, a basis for the fact that the court can look into it. Because he said if the court can't look at it, then the logical conclusion is that Parliament can basically just be prorogued for the whole year, mm-hmm. apart from like um, the funding bills and like the army bills, mm-hmm. which is like an interesting way to think about it. I also think, as Joe said, it's, it shows how far we've come, especially seeing attacks on the court in press from certain people and certain people kind of almost making out that like the courts or like or the the enemy of the people or we've heard certain phrases like that which you know before brexit to to have heard massive criticisms like that of court in this country is completely unheard of so it does again show just how far we have come but then but then i also think this gives the courts such great power that it's more in the public eye uh before this the supreme court has realistically not ruled on a case of this magnitude so this is a real test of its actual powers i think yeah i think also this is a a good moment for the snp given uh if the supreme court uh rules that 
the prohibition was lawful, then it's a higher court based in London overruling the Scottish courts, which obviously the SNP would love. But then if it goes the other way, then Parliament's back in session. So again, they get their voice heard. So realistically, they're the big winners out of this uh, court battle. Obviously, yeah, the English court didn't even rule on it. And apparently the government was so certain they'd win the Scottish case that they submitted evidence right at the last minute because they didn't think that they would rule on it. Mm. So I think this would be a bit of a blow to the government to lose on this case. Yeah. The, the main question is, if it does get ruled as unlawful, what are the next steps? Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be a clear path to what actually happens yeah, next. No. It seems that there's like kind of three scenarios, really. Basically, the options are the suspension's unlawful, but then the the way that the reasons are given often opens the uh, possibility of prorogue in Parliament for a second time in the same period, just lawfully. They just do it a different way. Um, there's another one, which is the only lawful option is for the Prime Minister to recall Parliament before the 14th of October, but apparently that would require extensive arranging, arrangements. And then there's the judges could declare it unlawful and then therefore Parliament just remains in session as if it never stopped. Yeah, I mean, they only game three weeks if it's ruled lawful anyway, isn't it? Yeah. So it seems like a, a strange, it's a weird flex. Um, I think I think the main, yeah, the main thing of it being ruled unlawful isn't even necessarily Parliament coming back. It's the effect it has on Johnson's legitimacy. Yeah, yeah, I do. Essentially, uh, because then as soon as Parliament comes back, they'll be gunning for a extension. Yeah, and then, then if they get an extension, then Johnson surely has to resign. I do think there's a bit of a Westminster bubble uh, with views on pro- prorogation, though. Um, like Comres did a poll where they asked participants whether they agreed or disagreed with the following statement, which was, Boris needs to deliver Brexit by any means, including suspending Parliament if necessary, in order to prevent MPs from stopping it. Now, there's a lot of debate about the wording of that question and stuff like that, but 44% agreed with it. 37% disagreed and 19% don't know. So I think that shows that realistically, while you have the Owen Jones of this world going around calling it a coup and all these uh, demonstrations, the public's still massively divided on it and are not wholly anti-prorogation. Mm. I think that's completely true. I think there's definitely large swathes of the population who, whether they voted for Brexit in the first place or not, now kind of they do have this attitude of, oh, I just want to get it done. We should just leave which is understandable after everything we've been through. So obviously, just before the prorogation, a key piece of legislation went against the government, which was the No Deal uh, Having to Seek an Extension bill. And in the wake of that, Johnson deselected 21 of his MPs, uh, including Nicholas Soames, Winston Churchill's grandson, Ken Clark, the father of the House, who's been a Tory MP for over 60 years, Gork, Stewart, uh, there's 21 of them, so uh, a significant portion of the... Uh, Hammond. Hammond as well, absolutely. A significant portion of ex- ex-ministers um, and staunch Tories who've been there for decades. So that was quite a, a huge change in the, in the Tory party, and it was a lot of the Tory moderate core who've now gone. Also, following that, there were key resignations, including Joe Johnson, Boris Johnson's own brother, and uh, a business minister. Uh, Amber Rudd also resigned as uh, Work and Pension Secretary, and Philip Lee most recently. 
So that takes the Tory working majority to da down to about minus 42. And the Lib Dems have been the main beneficiary of this with 18 MPs now. And you compare that to the seven they had following the last general election. So uh, that's the state of the current parliament that's not in session. So what, what do we think about this, this recent spate of deselections and resignations, guys? I mean, the, the Lib Dems must love people not voting on things. They've gained so many MPs yeah. from just switching around, I guess, haven't they? They've over-doubled their <laughs> parliamentary party. I mean, I think on the deselections, it's, it's, it's obviously not ideal. You wouldn't like it. Uh, the Conservative Party is, well, it markets itself on being a broad church. However, these are different times. And with an election coming and with the result probably going to be very, very close, can Boris Johnson really afford to have 20, what, 21 was 21. it? 21 MPs going against his wishes. Yeah. Although I think from my perspective on that, this is, you know, as you said, a, a broad church is what the Conservative Party is meant to be. He's gotten rid of a lot of dissenting voices. And as um, I believe it was Nicholas Soames said in his resignation, he was inspired to rebel by the front bench <laughs> because of their amazing history of doing so. <laughs> so you've got, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's rebelled against the government hundreds of times. I believe there are 17 ministers who've currently currently sitting, who've uh, rebelled this year against the government at some point. So it is slightly rich to have all of these classic rebel Tories now in power purge all of the moderates. I think the difference is, though, Boris marketed this as a no-confidence vote, which May never did. He was sort of leaning off the John Major, what he did with the Maastricht Treaty. In that case, uh, the rebels got on side. Yeah. In this case, they didn't. To Boris, this was a no-confidence vote, so yeah. he had no other choice, really. Although traditionally, if you lose a no-confidence vote, you resign. So He's doing everything he can to, not, resign, everything he can to not do that. Can't do what John Major did, because he no longer has the parliamentary mechanics to make votes on different issues, no-confidence votes, does he? I think back then, you you could basically attach no confidence to any vote that you wanted to. And, and if, if it went against you, it kind of enact the same response. Mm. I think secondly, just going back to the broad church comment, I think it just shows how we've spoken a lot about how politics is really being redefined about around the leave remain lines. Whereas before the kind of broad lines between say Labour and the Conservatives were in different areas. Now the broad line between parties is leave or remain. And I think that they will become a broad, church but there will have to be a broad church that is on that leave side and they might have a broad section of views on different policies but that this is one area where they do need to have some level of solidarity whereas in the past it was basically fiscal conservative yeah i think that what as you said about this this uh, broad spectrum of views in the party one thing that i do think is interesting is sort of like a unforeseen co consequence of this is the fact that because the lib dems have opened their doors to literally anyone who resigns, they're now a party filled with some, like, not terribly liberal conservatives, some Blairite but reasonably left-wing Labour members. It, it does beg the question as to what could you ever stand all those people on one manifesto? Like, these people have very different views. Some of these uh, people voted against gay marriage, for example, and you're questioning, is the Lib Dem still a progressive party or are they now just remain by 
any means necessary, we will accept anyone. And I think that that's a, a, a serious question they're going to have. Uh, well, they, they've become an alternative Brexit party, haven't they? Mm. Yeah, they have yeah. realistically, but just a bit more established, really. Yeah, however, yeah. they seem they seem to be doing well on this signal issue point. Think about how down in doldrums they were in twenty seventeen, and now they're polling at like twenty three percent. Yeah, twenty one, twenty two. When they were with Labour and so on, it's, exactly. it's scary. Um, so it is working for them, obviously. It's whether they can translate that into a policy position other than revoking Article fifty. Sure, yeah, yeah. they are a revoke revoke Article fifty party with some members like former Tories who potentially have voted for May's deal at least at one time of asking several times which is yeah so that's interesting you can't be an independent MP you need a party to stand on well as TIG proved yeah well yeah the independent group they they did nothing the independent group and then Change UK and now the independent group for Change uh, are they just the Anna Subri party with a member of one and that's Anna Subri Subri. but she's leader so that's nice and Chucker and then he left and then Chucker left and became a Lib Dem and is now he's changed party three times and now he's changing seat (laughs) it was interesting there was an article and they were talking about all the new people that had um, joined and they were literally saying so it's the party of Lib Dems Labour people who have left Labour People who have left the independent group because they were upset they didn't get voted leader. People who have left the independent group because they were upset that they did get voted leader. And now people who are upset that they can't, um, they've been kicked out of the Tory party. So as you say, I think that's becoming the broad church of UK politics now. Yeah, it really has. It's just the outcast group, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think also it is interesting trying to style the deselections as a Brexit issue, given that so many of the people voted for the deal so many times and well for example Hammond was one of in some ways an architect as well of the deal and he vo- he voted for it three times and then uh, now has been deemed not Brexity enough and so has been deselected and that's the thing isn't it because like Johnson always says that he's going to go for a deal and he believes that he can negotiate one and I don't think that he's crashing towards a no deal a lot of people think that he just he just wants no deal he wants to leave he's suspending parliament so he can just get out mm. um i mean i don't think he's trying to do that i think he you know may try and ratify may's deal a little bit but it is funny that all the people that he seems to have deselected were the people who voted for the deal that he necess- he pretty much wants to put through yeah well i mean one of the uh, mps who was deselected had never rebelled against the party before and this is his first rebellion, and then he was deselected. So I think it does beg questions for the Conservative Party as to how they move forward with their selection yeah. system as well, as to whether or not they can sustain this sort of arbitrary, unilateral, you're out policy. Yeah, and the issue is Labour were capitalising on that for a bit, but then obviously this stuff with Tom Watson's come up <laughs> in the party conference. Literally the, one of the worst party conferences starts yeah. uh, you could have. Very impressive. Because they were in a good position to get their Brexit plans or to move on. And now Momentum has tried to, well, they tried to abolish the deputy leader position, yeah, which is basically seen as getting rid of Tom Watson from the position, basically. Mm. The parliamentarians uh, in the Labour Party are anti it. And now Corbyn's called for a review of the role. So delaying it until after an election, I think. Absolutely. So yeah, again, while all of this has been going on since the deselections and all of that and Parliament was prorogued, the alleged uh, attempts to get a new deal by Johnson have been underway. Most crucially and most interestingly, uh, Operation Yellowhammer was released, the documents about it at least, which were the 
uh, government's forecasts for a no deal Brexit. And I think, to put it mildly, they were pessimistic. They were about a worst case scenario, although there was question about that wording as to whether or not that was a worst case scenario or as previously worded base scenario. So there was some controversy there as to whether or not that was the outcome they expected or the outcome they hoped wouldn't happen. But yes, so they they anticipated huge queues at border, issues with regards to the proposed zero tariff policy and a plethora of other issues. So uh, do we have any thoughts about that? Did anyone read any of the document? There was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot. There was a lot. But then, I, so I, I kind of was reading through some of it and I didn't understand a lot of it, I'm not going to lie. It's very wordy. Uh, but what I noticed is that a lot of people, like a lot of people commenting on it, didn't think it was the full thing. They thought it had been maybe not, maybe censored isn't the right word, but maybe not all redacted. Of the, redu- redacted. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I believe certain parts of it actually were indeed redacted mm-hmm. um, because they were deemed to be uh, national security issues. But also, this was almost exactly in line with a previously leaked version of it that was released about a month ago, but the name was changed. Yeah, I think that was the key difference. I think what the government will say on this was this document was before yeah, outdated. Uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. an outdated document. Um, and obviously the government has pledged what 2.1 billion in no deal planning. So, so they will argue that, okay, this was the worst case scenario, but yeah. we are mitigating the circumstances. But either way, this document does look pretty bleak. Yeah. Also, I think the most important thing about the document arguably is the fact that all the people, all the experts were saying, we're not really very surprised by this. This is pretty much what we've been saying <laughs> the whole time. The whole time. But the difference is now, rather than being able to blanket say that they were just spouting Project Fear, you've now got a government document to say they were spouting fairly accurate information. Yeah, I mean, it won't change anything because the Brexiteers, well, again, they've got a sound argument. The Remainers have the document they wanted. Yeah. So nothing changed. There's all these big revelations, but in the climate we're in, it doesn't affect anything. Do <laughs> There's yeah. always going to be that 40% of each side that aren't no, really going to change their position. I mean, if, if you look at all the comments on Twitter underneath the documents, like publicization, where they're all like, Project Fear, now this is the ex, yeah. this if, is the old government, the civil service acting against Brexit, all of that sort of stuff. So, I mean, yeah. there's always going to be people I, who... I've got a mate at home who's quite... Uh, well, he's very pro-leave. And... Uh, Every time I say to him, like, just just read this, it's like an economist's view on what could happen. And it doesn't look too good. He always comes back to me with, they were wrong before. Yeah. You know, all this stuff that they yeah. said was going to happen after we voted after we voted leave didn't really happen. So yeah. it could well, be wrong. I'll, I'll, Which I'll... is a fair enough point, really, because, you know, everyone was terrified that pretty much the day after the vote, Britain would just collapse. Yeah. I mean, as soon as we had those images of the pound sinking, everyone just you know, panic mm, true. for a bit. Well, again, you you have got, obviously there is radical leavers, but there's also radical remainers. As, yeah. um, oh, absolutely. There's a Guardian yeah. article on it, um, which was really good to read. But again, yeah, as you were saying, in a hypothetical second referendum, after all this <coughs> happened, remain at 49%, leave at 44%, undecided 7%. So, exactly. The, 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 core, the core groups haven't changed their views at all. Yeah. Um, but I think that's also partially because a lot of the underlying issues haven't been addressed in any way so yeah it's like brexit was an issue that kind of wasn't about brexit and now it's become about brexit and all yeah. the underlying issues that cause it are still not been addressed and they've not been addressed and i don't think they will be for a long time but it, it's like when um 
a while ago, I think it was, was it James O'Brien? He put up, he posted a tweet of the uh, 2012 Olympic opening ceremony and was like, take me back. This is when Britain was great. And it's like, no, it wasn't. Yeah, we yeah. were in the peak of austerity. Food bank usage was going through the roof and all this stuff. But to him, because we were, I guess, united yeah. and not divided in this whole Brexit issue, it's, record poverty is fine. Yeah, people were united and ignoring the issues back then. Yeah. And I think now that people, they're bringing these issues to the forefront. Forefront people sees Brexit as this symbolic block on dealing with child poverty, for example. And Bradley Wiggins had won the yellow jersey of the Tour de France. Yeah, that's, yes. yeah. that's the main. That's the main reason that it was great. And you're right there, Ellis. Yeah. So James O'Brien was in fact correct, and it's all because of Bradley Wiggins. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I think. So. But uh, that's from No Deal. Let's move on to a deal. Uh, so. As we've mentioned earlier, Parliament legislated that Johnson will have to seek an extension if he's unable to secure a deal at the EU summit on the 17th to 18th of October. Um, so there's a question as to how legitimately he is seeking this new deal. One of the reasons that Amber Rudd said she was resigning was because she didn't believe he was genuinely looking for a deal. However, he has been meeting with leaders and indeed today he's at in New York at the UN, apparently holding bilateral talks with the big the big names, you know, Merkel, Macron, uh, I think Baradka as well. The ones that he's been meeting, previously, well, he's pre- previously met. And again, there's the same classic murmurings about the backstop and how that could be changed. Given that's the only issue in Brexit, apparently, how could the backstop possibly be changed? We're hearing the old classics. We're hearing an all-Ireland backstop. We're hearing time-limited backstop. All the things that he used previously rejected, but I guess there is a question as to whether or not he can achieve these. What do we get? What do we think about that? Um, I'm torn between kind of two main thoughts, and that's one: he he is he does legitimately want to deal. He's trying to figure out something, and he he lives in some kind of parallel universe away with the fairies that he's going to just solve all these problems that haven't been that he's moaned about all this time. Um, and to be honest, I think it's believable that he does think it's completely solvable and everything will just be fine. Um, I think I think the other more realistic scenario is that uh, he, all this stuff is just bluster to try and make it look you get in a deal when realistically be quite happy to just get out with no deal. If you look at the promises he's made, the promises he's made are we will leave no matter what. And the, the things about getting a deal are very... It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Oh, it'll all get sorted. Blah, 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 like that. Nothing concrete. So I think if any, that points definitely towards to me. He's he's quite happy with no deal. He's gonna he's gonna at least have a bit of a crack. And if if some by some miracle something falls in his lap, great. He's amazing. He's some amazing negotiator, and he'll run with it. But I don't think that's it, realistically a scenario that's probably going to come out of it. Mm. I think one of the most kind of it, not telling, but something that does make me feel a bit like mm, I'm not too confident that he's either looking for one or going to get one is that he basically cut the negotiating team in half, didn't he? Yeah, there's six of them now. Um... Which, I mean, it's t- it took that long to get, you know, what was it, November 2018? Yeah. When the when the, when the the withdrawal agreement came through. So, yeah, he cut the team in half. What What's that going to do? I don't well, think he is. Um, well, for instance, he's sending David Frost, the Brexit negotiator, to Brussels every day now. He's in meetings constantly, as we've seen. He met mm-hmm. Juncker the other week. And they have put forward four non-papers um, to the EU. 
detailing what they apparently want. They haven't told any of us, um, which I guess is expected. You don't you don't just tell the public exactly yeah. what you're doing. Well, at this point. It's a negotiation at the end of the day. On Brexit cards, they were basically saying that Boris is saying, look, we're going to compromise. So they want Northern, they, they said Britain, okay, we'll allow Northern Ireland to be um, aligned in a regulatory way with the EU when it comes to agri-foods. So that's food safety, animal safety, plant safety. Mm. And now the EU has to compromise on its single market policy. Mm. But then the EU, obviously, it's a rules-based institution. It's like, uh, okay, what do you want us to compromise on? Can you please give this to us? Will these work? I don't know what's in these non-papers. It could be a great revelation of the Brexit. Mm. It could be nothing. I, I do believe and what's coming from the UK civil service, according to Laura Koonsberg, is they're exasperated at the EU who keep saying that Britain aren't doing anything. They're saying, which we are trying our best. Um, but they just need specifics. We've outlined what is wrong with the backstop. We need to outline what needs changing and how this works within the EU's rules-based framework. It's like what Merkel was saying, how they gave the UK 30 days to provide some sort of alternative with some detail and explain exactly what we were looking for and apparently they didn't receive anything. Um, the key is Dublin. If, yeah. du- if Dublin agree, the rest of the EU states will agree. And if, But if the rest of the EU states feel there is a concrete proposal on the table, they might put some light pressure on Dublin because obviously they want to mitigate yeah. uh, the risk of a no deal. We, it just depends. We need to wait and see what is in these non-papers, yeah. basically. I think for me, regarding whether or not he is or isn't seeking a deal, I would have said he wasn't seeking a deal until Parliament said he had to get an extension. Because for him, up until that point, well, no deal's on the table. He prorogued Parliament, so he was very safe and that he could have his no deal. He could get the Brexit that he wanted and get his uh, majority after an election. Once they legislated against that, and then once they rejected an election, he was really sort of, his hands were tied because they won't let him hold an election to get a new mandate for no deal. They won't let him pursue no deal. So realistically, his only option is to secure a deal or basically extend and therefore lose the election. I do think it's telling that basically what we were hearing for ages was Boris Johnson and his team said, oh, we're negotiating, we're negotiating. And the EU being like, we've heard nothing. We've received nothing. We've heard nothing. And then um, for for a long time, and then this deal is passed, uh, the bill's passed in Parliament and he starts to see the writings on the wall in terms of a no deal unless he can pull something out of the hat. And then it is, oh, we published these four non-papers with doing this. So there's definitely a marked change in what was going on there. Yeah, well, what, what do we think of the uh, anti... We may as well go into that, might we? What do we think of the no-deal bill? Do you think like, it's a positive or a negative? I'm not... I think it's a positive in the fact that it does stop no-deal, because mm. I personally don't want that. But at the same time, we've we've had so many extensions before. Yeah. It, this has been dragged on for so long. I, th- I Yeah, I do support it, just because... I don't think, as you, you know, as you said, there are a lot of extensions, but each time they say, what's the credible change going to be? I think this time we're finally going to have an election. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think that we should pursue no deal without a mandate to do so. Because I completely agree. As yeah. Gove said this year, no one voted for no deal. And no, no one voted for anything. 
no, they that, that's the issue, isn't it? That's, no, that's, that's yeah, it. Not, not voting for anything isn't an excuse to go and do something that but people the, explicitly didn't vote for. There was no description of no deal in the campaigning for the Leave vote. At no point was anyone saying we should leave without a deal with the EU because it wasn't something you'd even consider because there was two years to negotiate a deal. So at no point was anyone saying that we should leave on no deal or even say leave on trade on WTO terms. It was always we were going to get a deal with the EU. What would that deal look like? So I don't think that there's any reason that you should pursue no deal without getting a mandate to do so. The, the issue with that is no one knew what a deal would look like. Mm. Like mm. you look at some of those and that is a key. You look at some of the papers um, from the leave um, pamphlets and they were saying, oh, we won't be under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights or Justice, mm. Justice, Human. I think. I think it's the Justice Court. You, yeah, and European Court of Justice. In May's deal, we were still tied onto those rules for, what, another two years, was two it? Two years. Potentially longer. So can you make the same argument from a vote leave side saying, you said in this leaflet we wouldn't be part of the uh, the Court of Justice, in this deal we're in it. But again, you make that argument? there's a huge issue with the fact that, like that, people are confusing a withdrawal and leaving properly. So whatever version of a deal you would need a two-year withdrawal to extricate ourselves from all the EU institutions and to negotiate our actual future trading relationship. So it's not to say that you're not going to be part of the ECJ and under its jurisdiction. It's just saying that for the next two years, while you go about the mechanics of leaving the EU, then you would be under the jurisdiction, but there's no way you could ever have a deal with the EU in any format without having a transition of some form. So I get that perspective, but I think that that's been emblematic of the problem this whole time is that people haven't understood that there's a difference between a withdrawal and our leaving the EU properly. Well, again, it's the same with the um, the no deal. People are saying it's a clean break, like Farage, yeah. that's absolutely fallacy. We'll have to get some agreement with the EU, yeah. otherwise... Um... It's arguably the dirtiest break. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. you're going to then have to negotiate every single sector individually and you're building up towards an agreement rather than down from an agreement. You're, you're going towards alignment rather than away from alignment. So it's just the dirtiest break humanly possible. Yeah. And then you get all that bonus queuing at Dover. Yeah. That's fun too. But uh, so speaking of all of that, one of the big things that's uh, possibly coming up would be an election. So we are in a very, very unique situation in that the government has no working majority, and they've asked for an election and the opposition have rejected it, which I don't think... It's a bit weird, isn't it? Anyone anticipated would happen in another situation, but here it made a lot of sense. Uh, so I think everyone is gearing up towards an election. We've got the party conferences going on right now, trying to figure out whose policy is what. Um, and I think we'll probably be seeing one in November, which was in line with some of our predictions from our previous podcast. So now he'll be forced to extend or resign, I suppose, before he can hold an election. So what do we think is going to happen there, guys? How do we think the parties are standing and gearing up for this election? I mean, oh, I think, a lot of poll data as well, haven't you? Well, I think the, I think the extension um, could be a mistake because they require Boris Johnson to hand the letter. However, he's still prime minister. And when they ask for a reason, he could turn around and be like, there is no reason mm. because they've got to take Boris's advice. And I think we're all we're all in agreement that 
if the leader of the Labour Party wasn't Jeremy Corbyn, Boris Johnson would have been Prime Minister now. It would, yeah. it would be election yeah. season. It, the vote no confidence would have passed. It, it's because Joe Swinson isn't willing to back him, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a mistake. And also, it, it basically ruins the, the Q argument, doesn't it? Because Boris could turn around and be like, okay, um, let's have an election then. And now they're stopping him having an election. <laughs> yeah. But then, at the same time, if Labour can delay the election until after the 31st, then that will be big for them. I think there's a Comrades poll. This was on the 7th of September, so it's slightly outdated. This said that Conservatives are ahead of Labour by three points. Now, it's important to know that Comrades, notoriously, for some reason, have Labour at a higher position. Mm. But it's still roughly, it's a good outline. So they put... Conservatives have Labour by three points when asked how they'd vote if an election is held before the 31st October. However, when voters are asked how they'd vote in an election after the 31st October deadline, um, when when the Brexit deadline has been extended, Labour go ahead of the Tories by two points and the Brexit party increase their vote share by three points. Mm. So that would put Labour topping the polls. Yeah. Now it's slightly outdated, but if, if that indeed is true, that could be massive in an election. It could be. I think also... The polling has been fairly consistent with the Tories out ahead. Then the interesting developments have been more recently. Lib Dems have been overtaking Labour in some polls, but it's relatively close. It's usually within three points on most polls around the 24 think, to yeah. 21 so mark. I've got the poll of polls data here. So it's Conservatives on 33. This is Politico. So all the polls together, average. Conservatives 33%, Labour 23%, Lib Dems 19%. Uh, Brexit party 12%, SNP 4, Greens 4. Mm. Uh, you give on two, but they're an irrelevant party. Yeah. It's interesting as well having Farage talking a lot about an alliance with uh, the Conservatives and saying if he goes for, as I mentioned, a clean break Brexit, then uh, they would have an alliance where they would pursue the leave seats in the North, uh, which are Labour seats that the Conservatives have no chance of getting for many reasons. And they would then not stand candidates in conservative seats but they have but Farage did clarify conservative lever seats so conservative seats with lever MPs as well but it's a great point like and I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do that anyway because what is the point standing a Brexit party candidate against someone like John Redwood yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's as Brexit as you can come like, <laughs> literally just dividing the vote so I th- yeah I think Brexit party will just have to be selective about where they sit but I think in terms of if, if Johnson agrees to some kind of strategy like that that is completely toxic to any slightly kind of any, anywhere that's remained and anywhere that's slightly kind of yeah like 50 50 the, the farage brand is toxic for him yeah it's a big but he's, he's 21 mps down so he needs to find them from somewhere doesn't he? Mm. the thing is it's got to be a bit of a hail mary if he's going to win a majority isn't it yeah i, I wouldn't put it beyond him just simply i think it's doable as we've seen like what is it, 54% agree the referendum results should be respected, 25% disagree, 21% don't know, that's comrades again, I seem yeah. to be using a lot of their polls, but there will be a decision to make. Mm. Um, I think, it'd be I think they're the best place to win. It'd be interesting to see how the polling ends up in reality, because I remember before 2017, Labour were 12 points down behind the Conservatives, and uh, I mean... It did show Corbyn was a very good campaigner. And once he got on the campaign trail, he really did uh, win a lot of support for Labour. But then what you've got to consider is, does Lightning strike twice? Look at Zidane at Real Madrid. Uh, it's <laughs> hard to replicate 
something again. And you also underestimate the power of Boris Johnson as a campaigner. He won the London mayor against a very popular mayor, Ken Livingston, which realistically no one expected him to do. So Also the Lib Dems eating into Labour this time that they didn't have last time. Yeah, And also the, the mood has changed from 2017 surrounding Labour. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen this YouGov poll that 54% of the people who voted for Labour in the 2017 election, so realistically people who saw his campaign and liked him, they, they, they want him to resign. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's got sixteen percent of the public approve. Yeah, when you're when half of your voters want you to resign, it's it's not looking good, does it? I yeah, I think that uh, what thing one thing that we've seen over the last few weeks has been how ineffective the opposition has been in sort of capitalising on the Tory infighting and all of the issues they've got because you've you've got the perfect position for the Labour Party to rip into the Tories. And unfortunately, Corbyn doesn't seem able to do it effectively because he's too busy with infighting of his own and also with outlining policies that then don't get contradicted by his front bench and his front bench unilaterally announcing policies. And he's now in conference disagreeing with his grassroots. And the anti-Semitism thing. And the anti-Semitism thing. It's... It is like the thick of it when um, when Nicola Murray's leader. It does remind me of that, how incompetent they are. Yeah. Well, again, like, um, there'll be a lot of scaremongering against Corbyn because apparently internal Conservative polls coming from number 10 show that more of the public trust Boris Johnson with the NHS than they do Jeremy Jim Corbyn, Corbyn. which is a crazy, crazy right. cystic. And, and it also means that... Labour can't rely on their classic domestic policy route either. And their Brexit policy is being outflanked by the Lib Dems on one side and the Conservatives. And their foreign policy is not very popular either. But then again, the Lib Dems have very successfully shot themselves in the foot um, with Joe Swinson coming out as a full revoke without a second referendum policy. She did say if the Lib Dems get a majority, which obviously would never happen but still the idea that they are coming out as not a people's vote in any way or a second referendum but a we want to revoke article 50 unilaterally party they've also alienated the sort of soft leave people or the the the, the soft remain people who who believe in the democratic will of the people and believe that brexit's just been a bit messy and that we need to get another mandate and they've alienated the people they would be drawing from the liberal conservatives, I think. Yeah, I mean, all sides have alienated themselves. Boris Johnson has alienated vast amounts of his, well, what some oh, yeah, the yeah. conservatives core support, the small C conservatives. Um, Corbyn's alienated a lot of people by being so... All the centre-left, Corbyn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's going to be a tough election in to who to vote it's for and who's going to win. I think it'll be a hung parliament again. Yeah. However, the conservatives have pulled... Majority House for Hat before, and it'd be interesting to see how the SNP factor into Labour in the sense that the SNP could end up giving Labour the keys to number 10. However, they could also turn so many English people away from Labour that they end up... Like in 2015. Well, we are unionists. Yeah. I think think one thing that'll be interesting will be, obviously, Cummins Cummins has masterminded the um, referendum result. 
be interesting to see how he does in a general election. I've heard some commentators say that he, he's great in a kind of a one-off, uh, more of a referendum spectrum. But when it comes to a general election, he has proven, or perhaps they think he won't be as effective in that same scenario. The big gamble, so I think that'll be interesting. The gamble will be whether leave the Remain divide is more important than party divide. There's probably a lot of people up north who Boris Johnson is counting on to vote for them who has never voted and talk, never voted for the Conservative yeah. Party in their life. And they don't want to be seen as being yeah. a Tory. Um, yeah, I think the reality of the situation in the North has been shown with his recent visits up North, which have been plagued by heckling, people yelling at him. Because one thing that I think the Conservatives would like to sort of draw themselves away from is the fact they did enact austerity for 10 years. And that did hit hardest in the areas they need to rely on in order to win a majority. So yeah, I mean, all of these northern cities that they really want to get the votes for. Uh, and he's, he's doing policies for that. He's, he's doing, obviously, the train links. He's trying mm-hmm. to improve mm-hmm. them. Although, we'll see about HS2. Yeah, that right. could be axed by him. Um, he's planning on funding loads of infrastructure projects up north. Mm-hmm. But he needs to make sure the Leave Remain yeah. um, divide is still bigger than the party one. Yeah. That is a big gamble. Because in 2017, Theresa May tried to do a similar thing. Obviously, slightly different times. And she only gained half a dozen seats in the north. Yeah, and they came at the expense. So, so it's going to be a very tight call. Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, but I think we're all fairly agreed on a November election, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. probably a no confidence vote as soon as the extension's agreed. If he doesn't resign straight if away. If he doesn't resign, yeah. if indeed an extension is agreed, um, if an extension isn't agreed, it'll be interesting to see what happens. If mm. the EU, oh, what did he say? He said he'd rather die in a ditch than. Um, yeah, he said that in Northern Ireland. Yeah. What he say? Then? He'd rather die in a ditch than extend. Yeah. So, but then he can also play the classic. Parliament has forced this upon me. Yeah. Uh, the Parliament versus the people narrative, and yeah. that could be lying in the bottle room. Yeah. So, pff, guess we shall see. We shall see. Yeah. So I think that about wraps us up there, guys. So we will now be returning to a more regular, every two weeks for our podcasts. Now that's now that Parliament's back in session. Yeah. Now that our parliament's back in session, you will be hearing a lot more from us. Uh, But from us at Nothing Left Saying, that's goodbye for this time.